You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for August 2014. Today's episode is titled, Keys to Building Excellent Organizations. What are the keys to building excellent organizations? Dr. Chester suggests three answers, building strategically, building relationally, and building learning organizations. To build an excellent organization, management teams must discern the will of God for the organization in the context of the meta-narrative and be committed to strategically aligning everything in the organizations to fulfill the will of God according to the ways of God. Management must build relationally with C4 workers and service providers who are organized into effective teams who can then efficaciously deliver the organization's value proposition. And management must be devoted to providing a learning environment in which workers can grow and develop their respective expertise based on the wisdom of Christ. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Building Strategically, Relationally, and Learning-Based Organizations. First, we want to ask the question, does God value work? God value work. You know, if you're thinking about building organizations, which is what I spend my time professionally doing, thinking about how to build organizations from a biblical perspective, then you've got to ask the question, does God value this? And I want to just uh, share with you a little excerpt from an article. This is out of World Magazine, January of this year. This is uh, an interview with a pastor by the name of James White, and he's written a book about called Serious Times. And as part of this discussion, the question was asked, what should be the chief priority of the church? It says the chief, church's chief priority should be evangelism. We have all of eternity to worship the living God. We have all of eternity to grow in our relationship and knowledge of God. We have all of eternity to enjoy community with the people of God. Only here and now can we engage in evangelism and ministry to a fallen world. This is at the heart of what I believe Christ meant when he spoke of building his church and what I believe was his chief priority, reclaiming a lost and fallen world. Now, on one level, this seems pretty biblical. I mean, my goodness, we want to evangelize. We want to save a lost and fallen world. But what, it, what this view suggests is that work is really not significant. Work is really not important. Because if, if my whole agenda in life is to go and evangelize, and that becomes the driving focus of my life, everything I'm doing is about evangelism. So going to work is about evangelism. It's not about working. So what happens is it leads to an interesting conundrum. And that is I personally wouldn't want to buy a product or service from somebody thinking that way. For example, suppose that you wanted to have surgery. I really don't want my surgeon thinking about evangelism. I want him focused on the, the job at hand. Furthermore, I hope he's been focused on learning how to do this for a long time. And it's been a real priority in his life. Okay? When I go and um, eat at a restaurant, I hope that whoever is managing that restaurant and whoever's cooking that food and whoever's selecting the food to be cooked has made it a passion of theirs to do a good job. If all, of their, all they're there to do is just evangelize their coworkers, then the work becomes secondary. And when it becomes secondary, that means that it's not probably done very well. How many of you have experienced working with a company where people didn't really care that much about their work? Mm-hmm. You know, things fall in the crack. And in fact, we kind of expect it a lot of times, particularly it seems like at bigger companies, you just expect 
they're not going to do what they say. Yesterday, my daughter and I uh, had an interesting episode. We, she recently got married, and she has a cell phone that I've been paying for for a long time. And now that she's married and on her own, I'm saying it's time for you to take that cell phone off my account. Well, I talked to customer service, and they said, oh, no problem. All she has to do is go by a Sprint office, and they'll take it off. Okay? Well, we have, she called me yesterday, and we went out and had lunch together, and we, were, we had lunch right next to her Sprint office, and I've been trying for months to get her to do this. I said, why don't we just go over there and do this? So we went over to do it, and I'm thinking, I don't even have to be there. But I want to be sure she goes. We go in there and we, we sit down with them and they start asking me questions. I said, why are you asking me questions? Customer service said she could do this by herself. Well, I'm sorry. We have to have you too. I said, you mean customer service lied to me? She said, well, that happens frequently. <laughs> well, I mean, this, this, is what, this is typical. This is very typical. When you don't value work, it's not a priority. And really, none of us, none of us likes that. And so when we go around with that perspective and propagating the perspective that evangelism is it, it's the chief priority, this is what it leads to. Is there any wonder why Christians have a bad reputation in the workplace? I mean, Dennis talks about hiring a heathen. And I've hired lots of Christians in my career, and my batting average is 50%. Okay? About half of them were total duds. And it was because of things like this. Huh? I, I just prefer you not use dud in that context. <laughs> I love you, Debbie. <laughs> All right, well, let me suggest to you an alternative perspective. And those of you that are Presbyterians, you'll appreciate this. You know Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper arguably is one of the finest thinkers Christian thinkers in the last 150 years. Now I want to show you what he said about this same topic. He says, The chief aim of all human effort remains what it was by virtue of our creation and before the fall, namely, dominion over nature. Dominion over nature. That's what Terry was talking about when he was, he was reading out of Genesis chapter 1. Our charge. When we ask the question, why are we here? And we go to Genesis 1 to find the answer. We're here to rule and reign the physical creation that this spirit being we know as God created. He intentionally made us to be his rulers here on earth. So Kuiper's view suggests that work, which that's what God did in Genesis 1, is he worked. Six days he worked. And the seventh day, he rested, which has become a pattern for us. So Kuiper's view suggests that work is important and should be a priority for Christians. In fact, our evangelism should come out of the excellence of our work. That's the most powerful way to evangelize. You know, Pastor White's perspective, of it's not about drawing, it's not about fellowship, it's not about community, it's just about evangelism. You know, that doesn't win many people. Because what wins people is infecting them with something you've got in you that they want. Like that's what we've got to get to, is we've got to be excellent in how we live, and that draws people to us. Well, this happens to agree with Scripture. Now I want you to look at this proverb. One who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. Now think about that a second. He is saying if we are slack in our work, it's the same as being destructive. We're tearing down. We're not building up when we're slack with our work. 
You know, work is valuable to God. Yeah. Well, that we've got to get that, and that is so hard for us to get because we're so focused on spiritual reality that we miss the reality that God is in the physical and has put us here to rule and reign His creation. So, does work count? Any true Christian who goes to work outside the context of church or ministry will never be a good worker if he or she does not believe that work counts to God. We have got to get that work counts. I just look at a few anecdotal facts here that I think suggest that it counts deeply to God. Number one, God spoke the physical universe into creation into existence. If it wasn't valuable, why would he waste his time? Why would he do it? But he did it. God valued the physical universe, calling it good, seven times in Genesis chapter 1. He declares it good. At the end of the chapter, he declares it very good. And then he creates us, human beings, and says, okay, I'm going to put enough of me into you so you can do it. You can rule my creation. That's the reason we are the top of the heap in the kingdom of the physical world. That's why animals don't rule, fish don't rule, birds don't rule. It's because God put enough of us, of him into us, so that we could rule and reign his creation. Christianity is more than evangelism and ethics. One of the sad things that I, that I, I get sad about in, in hearing about marketplace ministry today is most of the people that I read about and talk to about this think that marketplace ministry is simply evangelism and ethics. If that's your perspective, let me suggest you are incomplete in that perspective. Evangelism and ethics are very true. We should be doing these things, but they are the fallout of being kingdom people in the marketplace. They are the byproduct. When we are walking in obedience to God, ruling and reigning, bringing forth kingdom reality wherever we are, it's going to be natural that people are going to see Christ in us. And they want to let them see Christ and be so attractive that they want what we have. And we will be doing it very principally with great values. Isn't that what ethics is? We will never build great organizations unless we believe that such effort is meaningful to God. If we, have, we have got to get clear on that. Otherwise, we will continue to be second-class workers. In a world now impaired by sin, our job as Christians in obeying the Genesis mandate, is to be facilitators of God's rule and reign in every area of life. Jesus believed this too. You know how we can see that? Well, look at the disciples' prayer. He says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus, this is the model prayer. You know, if you want to go and say, okay, Lord, how am I supposed to pray? Go right here. Okay, this is the prayer that should guide us, and it's about bringing forth the rule and reign of God wherever you are. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. Everybody can do this. You can be a staff worker. You can be a janitor. You can be, you can be working a, a menial job in any place, and you can bring forth the rule and reign of God because you can be salt and light there, obeying God, praying for your sphere of influence, walking the biblical reality in that sphere. If we believe that work counts to God, doesn't it follow that we must work and build based on his philosophy, values, and principles? In other words, if we really believe God's into this work thing, then surely he's telling us how we should go about doing this. Does that make sense? 
Okay? And yet the marketplace, where does the marketplace go for principles? It goes pragmatism. That's the worldview of the marketplace. Pragmatism, whatever works. What, what you have business professors doing is researching what they perceive to be great organizations or success stories to try to understand what, what makes this successful. And if you spend any time reading those articles, what do you discover? Invariably, what makes success whether it's personally or in organizations is one thing, biblical truth. That's what brings success. So, wow. But, you know, the professors never make the connection. I've yet to see a professor make that connection. Now, I happen to make that connection in my book. If you're interested in my book, I did make that connection. Just in case. I want to be sure that it's out there. It's in print. That connection has been made. And... We've got to get it. The, our real handbook for work is this book right here, our handbook. The problem is it doesn't say handbook for work on it, so we don't pick it up and think of it that way. But I have one that I actually put a new cover on, and it does say handbook of excellent organizations. The problem is none of us went to school and studied that book, did we? The point of work, because it's not taught. It's not used as a textbook to train us. We've got to change that. We've got to start training people from a biblical perspective how to go and work and work God's way. So we want to just touch on that a little bit today. We obviously, that's a massive subject, and we, could, we cannot do justice to that in, in a three or four week course. But we're just going to take in a few minutes here, talk to you about three key elements that will help you build as God builds, help you work as God works. The first one is building strategically. Second one is building relationally. And thirdly is building learning organizations. Now let me just quickly give you an overview of each of these concepts. And then we're going to do a case study and show you how the unsaved world used biblical principles to bring about excellence. Which that ought to be a... Isn't that, doesn't that convict you? When the unsaved world will take biblical principles and produce excellence. Where are the Christians? I am I'm baffled by this. Pardon me? Absolutely are crying out. If we could ever get a vision of this, we have, by, by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit, we can take it to another level. We can do that. But we have got to get a vision that God values work. And I think it's systemic in us. I can sit here all day long and tell you God values work, and I don't think you really believe it. Well, listen, I work with organizations every week. Five, six days a week. I talk to a lot of business owners. I talk to a lot of workers. And I, a lot of people that are professing Christians, a lot of people that are not professing Christians. I see a lot of scenarios. I do not see a vision in people how things work. I don't, they can sit there and tell me, oh, yeah, I know this is important to God, and I know we need to be kingdom people in the marketplace. They can say all the stuff. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you, we don't have it here. Until it gets here, it's not going to be reality in our life. Because Solomon says, it's out of the heart come the issues of life. Mm -hmm. So this is where we live. Not here. Until what's here gets down here, so now we can begin to live it. We're never going to have organizations at the level that God has intended. There is another level that out there is tremendous potential that would be incredible. Incredible in terms of delivering excellent products and services. And it would be a phenomenal evangelism vehicle. Phenomenal evangelism vehicle. Okay, let's talk about building strategically real quickly. 
To build strategically, one must have an equally yoked team of senior leaders who operate from a biblical worldview and understand the purpose for which God created the organization. Now, I know that's a mouthful right there. I mean, in some ways, that's a synopsis of my book. Okay? But this is a key thing. You will never build great organizations unless you have leaders that have God's vision for why that organization exists and are unified on how to go about making it happen or aligning up everything in the organization to make that happen. Does everybody understand? Being strategic is about getting a clear vision of where you want to go, figuring out where you are today, and lining up everything to get there. That's what being strategic is. And we need to be strategic in our personal lives. We need to be strategic in our church lives. We need to be strategic in our business lives. We need to be strategic in our families. We need to be strategic in our communities. Every area of life, we need to begin embrace being strategic. And you say, what's this got to do with Christianity? Well, it's got a lot. Because it defines the focus, the direction that you desperately need. And Jesus was the master strategist. Think of what, whatever Jesus does might be a good example for us. Might be a good model. When he had his conversation with his disciples, he asked them the question, who do people say that I am? And you get all these responses. You know, you're, you know, Moses, Elijah, you know, one of the prophets. And he says, who do you say that I am? Simon, the impetuous one, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, you're right. He says, now let me tell you what's going to happen. You see, our, our vision is rooted in our identity. And we get it who we are, which means not only that we're a child of God, but why did God create me at this point in time with these gifts and these talents and this opportunity, whatever it is that I have, when you get that, you can begin to get a vision for where it's going, what God is going to take it to. Jesus understood who he was, and as, as his people around him began to understood, understand who he was, he began to reveal to him the reality of his strategic plan. That is the strategic plan of the Father for his life. This is the way we've got to live. We've got to get clear on our identity, and then we get clear on our destiny, and then it's just a matter of lining everything up to walk it out. Building relationally. To build relationally, one must understand human limitations and value diversity and the critical importance of having the right people. An organization must have the right leaders, right workers, right customers, and right suppliers. Do you understand why this is important? You know, if you don't have the right relationships, you know what you're going to have? You're going to have conflict and inefficiency. What happens? When you don't, how many of you have tried to serve customers that you really just couldn't serve? You know, what, what you did, you couldn't satisfy them. There's a number of you have experienced that. I, I've had that. I had an assignment one time with a Muslim. And I think my assignment with this Muslim was to try to teach him the golden rule. I think that was my primary assignment. I spent probably two, three years working with him, trying to teach him the golden rule. And every time he would come back to me, the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rule. I said, no, that's not the golden rule. Over and over again. And this guy lived on the edge. He loved living on the edge. He never paid a bill on time. His, he, he worshipped money, and one of, the, one of the ways that you know he worshipped money is he didn't pay his bill time. In fact, he didn't want to pay, didn't pay him until there was a stress point. 
he was the kind of guy that, you know, he, everybody he needed some excitement. And if there wasn't excitement, he would create excitement. So the, what he did was uh, he wouldn't pay a bill until there was a crisis, like his rent. And they're getting ready to lock him out. Okay, well that just, ding, 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 that just rang the fire bell. Everything is cool. You know, we're, we're going to have a fun day today. So now he goes about, you know, negotiating with the landlord. Now part of the deal when you worship money, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, not having to pay anything more than you have to pay. So everything becomes a negotiation. So yeah, he agreed to pay so many dollars a month for rent, but now he hadn't paid it in three months and the landlord's about to lock him out. So now he gets to the landlord and he wants to cut a deal. Okay. Now, here's the deal. If you cut the deal too easily, he'll renege on you. Okay? you he, he's got to feel like he has squeezed you as far as he can for a lot of the deal. That's the way he lived over and over again. I mean, I saw all kinds of things happen. You know, landlord problems, utility problems, bank problems, you know, telephone problems, you name it. He had problems with everybody, and he was loved. Thus, he was worth too much. And this was feeding that worship of money. And my efforts to try to get him to think in terms of the golden rule were just fruitless. Now, what happened? To you? What do you think happened when somebody owed him money? Man, he was all over. I'm telling you, it, the rules were different then. There are no deals. You pay me everything. You pay me right now, or I'm going to take you out. In fact, this guy wore a gun. Wore a gun. And it wasn't even concealed. It was supposed to be concealed. Now, this is the way he lived. Well, let me tell you where this guy wound up. He's in jail today. This is where it leads you when you worship something other than the living God. That, that is a relationship that ultimately I asked the Lord to release me from because I could not do anything to help this guy. And I, just, I remember when I finally came to the end of it, and I said, Lord, I, tried, I don't know what else to do. It looks like to me I need to be released. I was released within a few weeks, and it was no problem. And it was, what was so interesting is this, this client of mine never terminated relationships well. They were always acrimonious. But I, 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 we terminated our relationship and we parted on good terms and he paid me every dime he owed. I didn't see him do that with anybody else. Phenomenal. I was the grace of God right there because I was fully prepared to walk away from a pretty substantial amount of money that, you know, that he owed me. But, you know, God, God is good. But the point of this discussion is to say you need to have the right relationships. If you're going to be effective in business, you've got to have the right leaders, the right workers, the right customers, the right suppliers. And the reason for this is that guess what? Nobody has all the gifts. Nobody has all the perspectives. I'm always amazed at how my wife sees things so differently from me. And it's, it, I've learned over the years it doesn't make her right or me wrong, okay, or me right and her wrong. But it's the diversity of the perspectives that brings the value and the strength. And what, an illustration I like to, to use is, is Dudley's sitting over here, and if I hold this clicker up here, Dudley, it looks like you know, kind of a long, narrow thing to you, but to, uh, to Terry, it looks like a little rectangle, doesn't it? Okay? It looks different to him than it does to you, but it's the same thing. So who's right? Both are right. Because the way God made it is different perspectives are not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Embracing the mutual, the differences, the mutual, the ways that God has made each one is different, and we value the differences that brings us strength and brings us a complete picture of reality. Yeah. So that's the way we've got to begin to think. We've got to value differences. We have to build learning organizations. 
So why do we need to do this? The reason for it is because when God created the universe, what he did is he created an experiment. The experiment was, guys, I've created this universe and I've made all the laws of physics and all the laws of chemistry and biology and all the laws of, of information systems and technology and the laws of how to build organizations. I've I created all this stuff. Now, you guys, I want you to go master it. If you're going to go master something, you have to go study it. You have to research it to discover what it is that God made. This is why research works. You know why research works? Because it's, it's the way God made it to work. If we go study, honestly study God's universe, we will discover God's principles. <clears throat> I guess you know that for a long time, the early people here didn't have a Bible. What did they have? Eventually they had the Old Testament, and eventually we have the New Testament. God's progressively given us more and more, and we've advanced. But we can learn a lot about God from just studying the universe. Mm -hmm. And that's why unsaved people can advance knowledge to a degree. Tell something? They should not be able to do it as well as we We should be able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to have more insight and more wisdom and take it further than they could ever dream of taking it. Can we get that vision? Yeah. Well, that's the challenge. Building strategically and relationally and building organizations is about change. Transforming organizations to reflect God. This is really what we're about. Building his way is ruling in his image. Remember he said when he made us, he said, let us, but enough of us in them so they can rule. There's enough of God in us, and I don't forget, begin to understand all that that means. I mean, that's, you could spend a lifetime trying to explore all that that means. But there's enough of God in us to rule and reign his physical universe and to do it his way. And that is our challenge. Okay, now we're going to have some fun here. We're going to talk about a case study. Phil, Phil Deal was appointed director of the U.S. Mint in 1994. Now, Phil was a very qualified man. He was the former chief of staff of the Senate Finance Committee, and he was also Lloyd Benson's first chief of staff during his tenure as Secretary of the Treasury. So he was experienced in the areas of finance and well-qualified to do the job. When he walks in that first day, what do you think he found? Okay. He found a very stodgy bureaucratic organization with no strategy, poor relationships, out of touch, locked in a time warp. In fact, his first day on the job, he came in late in the day. He walks into the Mint in Washington, and there's nobody there. Now, what do you think he thought? His first thought is, there must be a bomb scare. And the reason he thought that is because the Washington office shared a building with the Postal Service. And the Postal Service was punchy. So anytime they found any kind of package they didn't understand, they would declare a bomb scare. And of course, everybody evacuated the building. So he walks in the building late, late this afternoon, and he's thinking, oh, I guess the Postal Service is declared a bomb scare. Well, so he calls his wife and says, well, first day on the job, we've had a bomb scare. And then he's informed, no, there's no bomb scare. And so, well, where is everybody? And what he discovered was, business as usual at the Mint was, everybody leaves at 4.30. Okay? There is no passion in this place. Everybody here is working for a paycheck. This is a very stodgy organization that has no, no vision, 
and no sense of where they're going. You think this organization needs transformation? Mm-hmm. Would you like to work in an environment like that where nobody cares? Just about a paycheck? Yeah. Ho-hum. Who cares? You made a mistake. No big deal. You know, that's where it is. I'm, some of you may work in organizations like that. It's, it's pitiful. Let me just give you a description of this. Okay? Look at the vision. The vision of this is business as usual, don't rock the boat. Okay? That's, and that's pretty typical bureaucratic. I mean, if you're a 200-year-old organization, you think you've got, I mean, hey, you don't mind to come in here and bring change, right? So this is the way, the way it was, business as usual, don't rock the boat. The focus is all inward. It's all about asset protection. Now, this isn't surprising because guess what? They get to, they get to guard Fort Knox. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's a, a sizable job in and of itself. But there was another other mentality, and that was people are out to get us. People are out to cheat us. So every time they get an order for a commemorative coin, you know, everything, well, we've got to be sure we get our money in advance. We've got to be sure it's good funds. So if you're sending us a check, we've got to wait several weeks to be sure that check is really cleared before we can think about filling your order, and we'll fill it when we get around to it. So basically, orders were filled anywhere from eight weeks to infinity. Okay? You think this may create some customer problems? There's no clear sense of identity what this organization is about. Okay? In fact, even the phones are frequently answered by answering machines. How many of you have responded to a website that you know said for information, click here, and you send send in a you know email and never got anything? I mean, that's the common thing. In fact, I don't think I, I I'm thinking about looking back on the times I've done this. It's probably been a half dozen times. I don't think I've ever ever gotten a response back. Well, that's what it was here. You know, you leave a voicemail, you think you can get a call back? Give me a break. Okay? There's no incentive here to innovate anything. There's no sense of how, how to take this thing forward. It is a dead organization. Relationally, there's no leadership. You know, you don't need leaders if you're dead in the water. The leaders are about change, aren't they? You know, but if you're just status quo, we're just going to do what we've been doing for the last hundred years, you know, you don't need leaders for that. Morale was in the ditch. No energy, no passion, no one cares. No one goes the extra mile. People are working for a check. That is it. The only reason they're showing up is the check. As far as being a learning organization, there is absolutely no feedback. In fact, the OMB, which is the oversight for the men, their mentality is we don't want feedback. We don't want to hear what anybody has to say, particularly Congress, because we may not like what we hear. So they will not approve any programs to do focus groups or any kind of customer surveys at all. There's no money for that. There's no internal feedback system. They don't care what the, the, the workers think. Anybody ever had to live in an environment like this? I mean, it's just got to be depressing. I mean, to think to try to go into that environment and try to, to work with any kind of excellence when everybody else is just dragging anchor, this is terrible. Finally, there is no sense at all of private standards. You know, private companies know they've got to have satisfied customers, but guess what? You don't come back and buy from them. So they're very tuned in to trying to figure out how to satisfy you. They're trying to master, subdue customer service. And once in a while they call it, they change names. And I call it customer care. The new name for the same thing. How do we serve our customers? How do we care for our customers? But they're trying. They're making attempts. Although many times, I mean, I get chuckled at some of these attempts. They're pretty feeble. You know? so, but this organization has no vision of any of that going on. It doesn't care. It doesn't give a rip. 
So this is what Phil Deal walked into in 1994. So the first thing the change agent had to do, whether he's a Christian or not, he's got to believe that his work counts. He walked into that with that presupposition that my work here counts. So suppose he had gone in there as an evangelist. Okay? Don't hear me, I'm not critiquing evangelism. We all need to evangelize. But suppose his priority was, I'm here just to evangelize. Okay? He never would have been a change agent. U.S. Mint would probably still be running like it was back in 1994. But he came in there and says, no, my work counts. It's significant. I don't have any idea whether he's a Christian or not. In fact, all the reading I've done about the Mint, I can't determine that there's anybody involved that necessarily is a Christian. But they have applied biblical principles. So first, here's what he began to do. Relationally, the first thing he did is he listened. Listened. He listened to the workers. He was blocked by the OMB from doing any kind of customer survey, so he decides to go to uh, to trade shows where he runs into the coin collectors. Okay, now, the director of the men in these kinds of shows is normally like a monkey in a cage. You know, they, they basically are they're separated from everybody and, and they just kind of wave and shake hands and sign a few autographs. He didn't do that. He got out there and mixed with the crowd. He worked the room. And he asked questions. Hey, what is it you want from the men? Done business with the men. What was your experience? How are we doing? He starts asking these questions. You think he might have gotten some answers? He got an earful. He found out what was really going on. So he starts out by listening very carefully. Then the next thing he does is he begins to build bridges of trust. Now when you walk into an organization like this, where people are working simply for a paycheck, you know, you can get comfortable working for a paycheck. Didn't get content. Now, what do you think they may be scared of? Rock my boat. Don't rock my boat. This new guy's come in and he's asking lots of questions and, you know, what's he going to do? So the first thing he's got to do after listening is he's got to build trust. So for months he didn't do anything other than listen and build relationship. So people would trust him and know he's not going to do something crazy. Gradually, as he identified things that needed to be done, he developed the strategy. What is this organization all about? He, he, he had to redo his management team, because as you might expect, it was a pretty sick puppy. Gradually, he has to rebuild his management team, and he begins to challenge them as they do strategic thinking and try to get a vision for what, what is this organization supposed to do? What's its identity? What's its destiny? Where is it going? How are we going to get there? So they began to define new initiatives that need to be done. Then they said, you know, we have got to be in touch with our customers. Of course, he had done his scouting work, you know, pretty much independently, so people didn't know what he was doing at these trade shows. And as he was beginning to get a picture of reality here, he said, I've got to get this picture to my people. Well, how did you do that? He's got to get them engaged in asking questions. So he hires a very, very effective technology person who was very web savvy and they began to use the web as a tool. It was a very cost effective tool. They didn't have to go and get a bunch of money from Congress and answer to the OMB. By the way, the OMB had it set up that if they were going to do any kind of customer satisfaction survey, they had to get OMB approval. And how long do you think that would take? You know, if you're talking about eight weeks to infinity, it's probably more like two years to infinity. 
because the OMB did not want customer satisfaction surveys. So what happens is he's beginning to use the web, and he's beginning to get a lot of people in the organization involved using the web to find out what is it the customers are saying? What do they want? How can we serve them? So the culture is gradually changing as he builds relationally, as he puts strategy in place, as he builds a learning organization trying to discern and understand and subdue this whole arena of the work of the men. Now where did all this go? What was the result of all this? Five years later, here's what happened. This is five years after applying biblical principles, and I don't think he had a clue that he was applying biblical principles. Strategically, where he is, he's got focused markets. They've identified where they need to be. Okay? Secondly, they've understood their role to memorialize history. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. They really got a vision that, you know, the coinage of a country would, could reflect and convey the history of a country. Mm. They understood that in God we trust on our coinage was significant. They're not trying to explain that. I thought that was fascinating. They realized that we have a Christian heritage in this country. And they realized that needs to be preserved. Our coinage needs to reflect that. Mm. And one of the most fascinating things I found was they understood generational transfer. I said, wow, good grief, how did, how did this organization come to that? They began to understand that there were people out there because they asked and were a learning organization. They understood that there were people out there that wanted to buy coinage and pass it. So they began to ask, well, what is it you want and how should we package it? How can we serve you in this way to provide generational transfer to your children? Isn't that fascinating? I mean, this is unbelievable. I'm looking at this and saying, Christian companies don't do this. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've gone into an organization and asked them, and I say, okay, what is your 50-year vision? What do you think happens? They look at me with a blank stare. What? I look your 25-year vision. It's a break. Do you have a five-year vision? No, maybe sort of. If you don't have a 50-year vision, you're not multi-generational. No. You've got to get, see beyond yourself. If that's not easy. I mean, I'm a company. I'm asking myself all the time, or what is it you want to do with this company? By the way, we got more here. I think we should take all of our stock certificates and throw them away and reissue stewardship certificates. So what I ask myself is, Lord, this is your company. Strategies at work is your company. I happen to be the steward right now. Right now. That's it. What is it you want to do with this organization over the next 50 to 100 years? Tough question, isn't it? You don't have an answer right now, because I don't have an answer either. But we've got to begin to wrestle with that. Here is a, as far as I can tell, unsaved people figuring out there's something about generational transfer that we need to be involved with. So they do it the best they can, and it's just phenomenal what they came up with. Relationally, what you now have are the employees that are energized. They're excited about being part of this organization. Because now there's purpose, there's vision, there's passion. There's, there's satisfied customers. You know, one of the reasons that they had the phone answered by an answer machine back in 1994 was they got a lot of complaints. <laughs> so I mean, what do you do when you have a lot of complaints? Well, I just don't want to take that call. See, so that's the way to do it. Let it go to voicemail. Or they didn't have voicemail, they had an answer machine. You know? See, when you're behind, you're just a way behind. I mean, you're behind, you're, your technology is behind, everything's behind. 
finally, this, this organization became very customer-centric. That's another new term. You know, the, the private sector has come up with that term, customer-centric, meaning the customer, we want to really focus on the customer. You know, we create all these new terms to, all to deal with the same problems. You know? you know, we used to have personnel departments, now we have human relations departments, right? Now, some people call them people departments, so we keep changing the terms, but it's all the same thing. You know, whether it's people departments or dealing with people or customer service. The focal point is this organization, my organization exists to serve somebody. I've got to figure out who I'm supposed to serve and how I'm supposed to do it and who is my successor and how do I prepare my successor and what is God's vision for this. I've got to begin thinking God's way and as I do, I ought to be able to take it to a higher level than what they've done. Now, let me just show you what happened. This, I mean, this is good. What happened is really good. But what's really great is other people recognized it. Now, many of you may be familiar with uh, the University of Michigan, and they have a, a quality research center, and they do surveys every year. And the Met went to the OMB and said, can we be included in this survey? Now, the OMB wasn't very excited about that. But they agreed to let the, uh, the Met, along with a number of other agencies, be included in the survey. And guess what? The Met ranked number one among all the agencies. But what was even more amazing was, out of the 200 private sector companies that were surveyed, it was number two. That's the only one. Mercedes what happens? When you begin to apply biblical reality, regardless of who you are, you can take it to another level. But there's more. I want you to really listen. This, this is what I want you to get. Okay, if you haven't gotten anything else out of this, just listen a few more minutes. There are three levels of work. And I'm sorry, Mark. PowerPoint's not working quite as well as I'd like, so try to focus with me on the first level, okay? The first level of work is provision, okay? Provision trumps principle. When you are working for provision, it's all about the paycheck. It's not about principle. It's not about the spirit. It's simply about making money. That's the lowest level of work. And let me suggest to you, I have never seen a great organization built on people that work for provision. That has not happened. The second level is principle. When you're really working for principle, principle trumps provision. Now, you will be provided for. Because Matthew 6.33 says you will be. Matthew 6.33 says, If you'll seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, which is his standards, his principles, I'll take care of your needs. That's what Jesus said. So if he's true to his word, and I work on principle, his principle, provision will be there. Well, that's the second level. Most organizations that we recognize today as, quote, great, okay, they're working based on principle. Now, you're familiar with the container store, local store. That, that store is largely driven by the golden rule. That's driving principle of that store. Now, I think it may be run by homosexuals. I think. I'm not sure. But... The point is, they have such a passion for following the golden rule, and they do it well, it creates an incredible environment there. They pay more than double the normal wage to the workers. <coughs> Turnover is very low. Typical retailer spends about 10 hours a year training each worker. The container store spends, on average, 200 hours a year per worker in training. That's the difference. When you begin to value people, you begin to train people you begin to well. What happens is you produce an excellent company. So that's, that's, that's working on principle. The highest level of work 
is working in the Spirit. Power of the Holy Spirit. Now, personally, I don't know of any organization I can look at and say, this organization is at that level. Now, I know there's some business owners and some individuals within organizations that have some sense of that and try to walk at that level. But to get an organization as a collective whole to that level, I have yet to see that. I think that would be a phenomenal thing to see. I like to talk about Southwest Airlines because that's another company that, again, as far as I can tell, largely run by unsafe people, but they are fanatical about the Golden Rule. Even alone among all the airlines, money is not the indicator of success. It's a indicator of success. The bigger indicator of success with Southwest Airlines is if you look at their people. They're very happy people. The people love working there. There's a passion to be part of that organization. That to me is a bigger level of success than the profit they make. See, they are, they are where they are largely based on principle. Where could they go if they worked in the power of the Spirit? About a year and a half ago, I had lunch with a VP from Southwest Airlines who happened to be a Christian. And so I was taking this opportunity to really drill down and find out things that I had not been able to find out through my reading. I try to do everything I can on companies like that to find out all I can about it. But there's a lot of things you can't find out in print, particularly when you're reading, you know, secular writers who don't share your passion for biblical worldview. Okay, so they're they're not necessarily gleaning the things you want to glean. So I took this opportunity at lunch to try to understand more about this operation. So we have this conversation about their people, and he starts telling me about some of their workers that had uh, been there a long time, and for whatever reason, they, uh, they were just kind of being left behind. They weren't really staying up, and they weren't as productive as they used to be. So I said, what are you going to do with these people? He said, oh, we're just kind of putting them out to pasture. I said, what do you mean by that? Well, we'll find some remote place like Amarillo or something, and we'll ship them up there, where you know their inefficiencies won't be a big factor. But is that blessing them? Is that biblical? Is that what you do? Is that how you help people? Is you help them in their dysfunctionality? Once you call them accountability, once you love them enough to make them aware of what they're doing wrong and help them go forward. You see, they don't have a vision for that. That's where the principle stops. So there's a whole other level of excellence that they could achieve if they would learn to walk in the power of the Spirit and see people as God sees them fully. They kind of see a little bit of a bigger vision that they haven't gotten to. So working for in the power of the Spirit is, is comprehensive of working for provision, working for principle, and working for the glory of God. U.S. Mint went from provision to principle with much success by improving relationships and strategy and becoming a learning organization. What would it be like if they went to the highest level? Living by the Spirit. Wow, well, Lord, give us the grace to, have, to see an organization function. God values this physical creation. I'm going to keep saying that, even though I know we don't really get it. Okay? I'm going to keep saying it, because someday, Lord, let us think in how much you value your physical creation. God values people and their work to rule his creation. What we do Monday morning is significant to God. It counts in the kingdom of God, and we've got to get it. When we talk about advancing the kingdom of God, the, the default is always thinking about evangelism and missions and all that. That is it. That is part of it. But it also happens at your business on Monday morning. You can advance the kingdom of God right where you work every day. That's the vision we've got to get. If we begin to do that, guess what? The, just one individual here, another there, another there, another here. What's going to happen? Yeah. It's going to become contagious. Because, you know, when you start walking here, 
you got to see a power in you, a peace in you that they don't have. And when they get in a ditch, they want. And they're going to come to you and you have an opportunity. That's when evangelism really transmit your DNA into them. Discipleship. And as we begin to do this one-on-one, two-on-one, three-on-one, and it multiplies arithmetic is final. We'll let that happen. We'll just be faithful in what we have to do. Let God worry about the increase. It will be a phenomenal thing. But we've got to get it that our work counts. Three key ways of ruling God's love that we've been talking about today. I hope this is your takeaway. You've got to work relationally. You've got to build relationships in all areas of life. Relationships are the vehicles by which you will touch lives. Two, you've got to be strategic. You've got to know who you are and where you're going. Your organization has to know who it is and where it's going. And finally, you have to always be in a game of learning. And that is work. Life is learning. We never stop learning. When you got out of college, you thought you were through with learning. That was a lie. You are continually in the game of learning. Do never, never forget that. We should always be looking for where is the next place for us to go and learn. I try to expose myself to as many teachers as I can, read as many books as I can, engage in many conversations as I can, challenge myself to write. Writing is a great way to learn and process. Try to keep myself in the game of learning. Because I know as I'm learning, I am subduing and mastering God's creation, which is what I was put here to do. And so it is.